If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. This April marks the 60th anniversary of the beginning of the Bristol bus boycott. A campaign to overturn the bar on black and Asian conductors and drivers working on buses in the city. The boycott turned into a cause célèbre, attracting the support of figures such as Harold Wilson and Leary Constantine, and also paved the way for landmark legislation on racial discrimination. Spencer Mizen spoke to historian and researcher Hannah Cusworth to find out more. So, Hannah, April marks the 60th anniversary of the Bristol bus boycott, um, which is a landmark moment in the campaign for racial equality in Britain. But before diving into it in, in, in detail, I wonder if you could start by giving our listeners a, a quick introduction to the boycott. What were the main milestones in this incident? Sure. So it began, as you said, in in April. And I guess the kind of big trigger was that there was a a, a black Brit who'd come to the UK from from Jamaica, Guy Bailey, and he'd applied for a job to work on the Bristol buses and was rejected after it was found um, that he was that he was black. And there was a, a sort of an activist, a sort of social worker, youth worker, who knew Guy Bailey, who was actually involved in his application for the job, who um, said, we've got to do something about this. Let's." And the, the idea of a boycott came to him. So the boycott was announced right at the end of April, April 30th, and gathered momentum. Um, there was, during May, there was uh, marches, there were a, was a huge amount of publicity, both local, national, some international. And over the summer, there were negotiations started between the bus company, the union, which actually played a really important role in this, 
and eventually as we're getting towards august there the boycott was was successful because there was a vote it was decided that there was um they were going to scrap discrim- racial discrimination in terms of who could work on bristol buses and then by september september the 17th um rangbir singh was the first non-white um person to work on bristol buses now if we re- rewind a little bit i wonder if you could give us um a bit of a flavour of what life was like for Bristol's black community in the 1950s. How many had arrived in the city since the end of the Second World War? And what kind of reception had they been given? Yeah, so we're talking about really quite small numbers, in a sense, in in the 1950s. About, I think it's about 1,500 people, um, kind of black Caribbean, black, potentially also black African people, by I think it's sort of 1958 was was um, one of the figures that I that I had. So we're talking like less than one percent of Bristol's population here being black at this time. And I think lots of people, lots of listeners would have heard about the Windrush and and the idea of the sort of Windrush generation. And I think it's often said that people from the Caribbean were invited to the UK to fill jobs or to help rebuild Britain. And actually, in that sort of late 1940s, early 1950s, there wasn't an invitation. And and also that those, while those people were British citizens by law, the people who were either from an empire country or Commonwealth country, there wasn't the welcome there. So these people, people from Jamaica, my family um, are from Antigua, you know, they'd, they'd been brought up to think that Britain was the mother country and that they would be able to go to this kind of almost like land of milk and honey and have um, be welcomed as British citizens, which they were. That was just not the case. There was a huge amount of discrimination, particularly in housing, actually. So housing was a really big issue. It was really hard for people to, to get housing. And in Bristol in particular, this meant that a lot of black migrants ended up having to rent really poor quality housing in an area called St Paul's. And it's often said that the that the, the migrants kind of depressed the area, but actually it was run down before that. Um, so they were living often like, you know, multiple people to a room with other migrants, not only black migrants, actually, maybe Polish migrants. And they, but they actually found it relatively easy to get jobs because while Britain had a, a housing shortage, it, had a huge number of low-paid vacancies to be filled. So they would arrive, they would find jobs. At this time in the sort of 1950s, particularly early 1950s, it was mostly single young men who would come to to earn some money, send that money back home to have a better life. Um, And they, yeah, faced a huge amount of discrimination. So one of the organisers of the Bristol bus boycott described they'd rented like a dance hall so they could have a bit of a night out. And that they were banned from it. They were like chucked out because they were wearing hats while they were dancing. But really, the the issue here was that they were dancing with white women. So, you know, it's a lot of young young men trying to make a life for themselves in pretty tough conditions, working kind of low paid jobs and in Bristol, concentrated in this area called St Paul's. Now, was there anything anomalous about Bristol or were the experiences of black people in Bristol being pretty typical of what was going on around in other cities around Around the United Kingdom? Yeah, it's a great question. So 
this the kind of experience in Bristol to me sounds in some ways quite similar to the experience of black migrants in Notting Hill and some of your listeners might have heard of the Notting Hill riots or race riots they're sometimes described there were there were similar kind of uprisings disturbances attacks on on black people and so this wasn't this wasn't something that was unique to Bristol I think what's particularly interesting about Bristol is that the city has such strong connections to the transatlantic slave trade and there had been, as in many other areas of the UK, a sort of black presence in, in Bristol for a long time. Obviously, post-war, that presence grew. But I think it's, it's, it is not a, an experience that's unique to, to Bristol. Now, you say black people um, face a lot of discrimination in this period. I mean, how did this discrimination manifest itself in the actions of the Bristol Omnibus Company. Can you give us a bit of background to that, please? Yeah, so I guess moving more specifically to the to the company. And this was something that I, I had a little bit of to like get in my head around. So you've got the Bristol Bus Company, but you've also then got the union. So it was the kind of big union was the Transport and General Workers Union. And it was the union that had passed a resolution and it was the what's called the passenger group. So people who like conductors, bus drivers, and they had actually passed a resolution in 1955 banning what was described at the time as coloured workers and said that we will not accept them as bus conductors or bus uh, bus drivers. That wasn't the case in the garages. So you did have black members of staff working kind of almost like more black behind the scenes. But there was this ban on drivers and conductors. And I think part of the reason why maybe the company was able to get away with it was because it wasn't official company policy. It was much more the policy of the union. So when you say it was, it was in many ways a policy of the union, how did they justify this? I mean, from the distance of 60 years, this policy seems quite extraordinary. I mean, mm-hmm. how, yeah, what did they give as an explanation for this? And how was that explanation kind of received around the city of Bristol? Yeah, sure. So... Ian Patey, who is the sort of general manager, my understanding is general manager of the of the Bristol bus company, you know, he didn't necessarily, the sense I guess, he didn't disagree with this resolution, right? He was pretty happy with with the situation that you you didn't have black um, and Asian bus drivers, bus conductors, and it's not to say that everyone in Bristol agreed with this policy because when you then get onto the boycott, there are a number of letters. Uh, in support of of the boycott saying that this policy is you know it's racist it's unacceptable but at the time it was perfectly legal so there was no law in britain at this time which said you couldn't discriminate on the basis of race and employment those laws would come in much later i think that a lot of people and in bristol expressed racist concerns or fears uh, sentiments around working alongside a black person, having a a black or Asian boss. That was a particular issue for people, the idea that you would have to take instruction from someone who was black. And I think here we kind of see the legacies of of slavery, kind of reminiscent, you know, Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech from a few years later, where he talked about, you know, the horror of the black man having the whip, uh, whip hand over the white man. There was kind of people talked about oh well if you know if there are women on the bus and there's a black conductor you know are they going to be safe and so it was it was legal it was supported by a lot of people it was again this kind of policy of the of the union and then there were also these um arguments around like 
if we have black people working on the buses, it's going to drive down conditions for the people who already work on the buses, the white workers. It's going to drive down wages. And the conditions of, of the bus drivers and conductors, they had declined. Like wages weren't great, like, but there was also a huge number of vacancies. And so I think that was that was an argument that was often made by leadership. But I think it wasn't necessarily, you know, the full story. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. So this policy was introduced in, you say, the mid-50s. Mm-hmm. The bus boycott started in 1963. So mm. this was going on for years before it became a kind of national cause celebre. I mean, why was that, do you think? It well, Yeah, it was going on for years. And also it wasn't a secret. Uh, so that there was a kind of a local paper, I think it was the Bristol Evening Post, that ran a series of articles about this in, I think it was 1961, exposing it and saying this is a this is a problem um one of the leaders of the bus boycott his wife had applied to become a conductor the year before the boycott and was rejected i think they weren't quite able to prove it was racial discrimination in in that case but i guess for the you know for the reasons we've talked about britain was a country that liked to present itself as being anti-racist, you know, different to the United States, for example, different to South Africa. And there would be kind of discussion like there's no legal, you know, we're, we're, we're different to that. We're the country that abolished slavery. But when you then looked at it on a much more case by case basis, you did see these what were described as colour bars, very clear colour bars existing at the time in housing, um, pubs and in employment. So were other similar policies enacted in other cities around around Britain? Yeah, it was a really mixed picture. Um, so in London, you did have black crews on buses. And in fact, I think it was in 56, London Transport, at the invitation of the Barbadian government, did start recruiting actively from overseas to fill labour shortages. So the situation in London was a little bit different. But you did have bans in a place like uh, Coventry, for example, was a place that had a similar ban, a similar colour bar. Uh, whereas like down the road in Bath, uh, you did have black black crew so it, it really it would really varied. i don't think we can say that like oh yeah london was kind of much more ahead of the time whereas other you know parts outside of london were were much more racist because i don't think um the kind of evidence supports that that claim so we get to 1963 and the bus boycott begins so 
What is the trigger for this becoming a big issue and, and this campaign to overturn the bar really gathering momentum? Yeah, so I think we talked about this really briefly at the beginning of, of the podcast. So there's this guy, Guy Bailey, and he had come over to the UK from Jamaica to to live with his aunt, to receive a better education, have a better life. And somewhere I read that he was really interested in driving the buses, like it was something he wanted to do. He was a student. He was a um, he had a job at a, a warehouse, and he was also kind of a member of, of Boys Brigade. So he was, you know, he was educated. He was upstanding, and he wanted to apply for a job. Now he was also in touch with this with guy Paul Stevenson, um, who was a sort of youth worker, and they had met, I think, through like a night class that that they that Stevenson I think must have led and and Bailey attended, and they had this idea that they knew the kind of this colour bar existed, and almost Guy Bailey was acting as like a test case, I guess not that dissimilar to to sort of a Rosa Parks, and so he applied for a job, got an interview, and then Stevenson called the company and said you know, Guy, Guy Billy is black. And they said, okay, no interview them. And at that point, I guess it was a case of, right, what do we do? Do you know what I mean? Do we, do we take some action against this? We should stand against this in this very clear injustice. Um, and Stevenson talks about how he was, I think like walking on the, walking on the downs and was kind of inspired by, was inspired by God and to think about doing a boycott. Uh, also inspired, obviously, by the activism in the civil, U.S. civil rights movement, and then the campaign kind of began from there. They called a press conference. They they then started the boycott the, the following day, and it it just kind of grew in terms of national um, attention, press, people in the in the city, um, and the negotiations began. Okay, so can you tell us a bit more about Paul Stevenson? Yeah, so he was ever so slightly different, in a sense, to some of the other members, uh, other leaders of the campaign who had arrived in Britain in the 1950s, were, were West Indian by background. So Stevenson was born in the UK and he was um, had a, a West African father, an English mother, and had lived in, in Britain sort of all his life. Um, had been evacuated during the war and had then been sort of educated and decided he wanted to become sort of like a youth social worker, studied to do that in, in Birmingham and then got a job working um, in this kind of profession in, in Bristol. So he had a different background in some senses to, to some of the others and I think that was why in some ways he was chosen to lead the campaign because people felt that he I guess that he was maybe the the more acceptable face you know there's a kind of there is a potentially a, an element of racism here you know he was he was mixed he was had a British accent he was seen he's often described as like articulate which I think is potentially problematic a bit coded um, and so he he kind of was very much at the forefront of the campaign. And so let's talk about the tactics that the members of the boycott employed. Why did the boycott catch fire so effectively? What tactics did they deploy to really grab people's attention? Yeah, and I think this is a fascinating one. So when you're thinking about the boycotts, the bus boycotts in the US, about, I think it's sort of between like 70 and 80% of the, of the bus users in these US boycotts um were black that was just not the case in bristol right you've got like it's less than one percent of the of the of the population so i guess it wasn't a pure kind of economic thing from the black community withdrawing their their bus fares 
you have got a variety of different reasons why it was kind of successful, I guess. And part of that obviously was the the boycott, but it was a lot around the the press attention, around the activism and I guess energy of people like Stevenson, of Hackett, I guess of Bailey putting himself forward to be this test case. And then another interesting and kind of important figure was Sir Leary Constantine, who's kind of, I think, bit forgotten to history today, but at the time was a huge deal. He was a really prominent uh, cricketer and then became the high commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago. And, and that, that role was much, I think, much more significant perhaps then than it, than it was today. And he was very involved. He was really, so he had been involved in activism beforehand and had actually won a case in the high court in the 1940s around discrimination. So he had been refused to be served in a hotel. They were like, you can stay for one night, but we don't want you staying anymore. It's going to upset our American guests. Took that case to the high court and it was recognised that he had been, you know, discriminated against. And so he he had got involved. I think he'd been contacted and, um, and ha- was, was kind of just interested in supporting this case. I think Stevenson was very good at reaching out to people. Um, to- for example, like Tony Benn, who was the local MP at that time. He They were in contact and Tony Benn lent support to the campaign and I think was kind of said like, you know, I'm going to get a bike. I'm going to. I'm going to use. <laughs> I'm not going to use the buses. And um, and I think that there were kind of a number of quite high profile figures outside of uh, Bristol. Harold Wilson, for example, Labour leader, got involved. And I think it was a kind of a combination of all of these people and their activism, as opposed to the kind of economic impact of the boycott itself, that had probably had like one of the biggest roles. And you mentioned the Bristol Evening Post newspaper earlier. To what extent did that get involved? And and would I be right in saying that Bristol students threw their weight behind the campaign as well? Yeah, very much so. So the the paper was, I think, really significant. There was a really big number of articles. I think they had said that it was the biggest mailbag they'd ever received, you know, on from people on both sides, support both supporting and against the sort of Calabar and, and boycott. So they were very instrumental in, I guess, upping the ante. And that obviously plays a big deal in, in negotiations, right? When you when you feel like the eyes are on you. Bristol students, yeah, also played a really, a really big role in terms of they organised a march down to the, the sort of bus garage um, and were heckled by a lot of bus workers, actually, for, for doing so. And this was kind of student activists, maybe who were involved in like the campaign against nuclear disarmament. But I think their their support, because obviously a lot of these students would have been would have been white. So it was a kind of a multiracial campaign in in that sense. Do you get any sense that members, that some members of Bristol's black community were a little bit nervous about the boycott? Did did, did some of them fear that it, it might invite further dis- discrimination and vitriol against them? Yeah, and I think with some justification in a sense because Stevenson was very much vilified. There was a guy called Ron Nevercott who was the Southwest Regional Secretary of the um, of the union, and he he really went for Stevenson, and so much so actually that Stevenson won libel uh, damages because of of how he was he was spoken about. A lot of the community did very much support the boycott and came out and and were, were vocal. But some were hesitant. 
for a variety of different reasons, whether it was facing a backlash, whether it's because they felt like they didn't want to be getting involved in in politics. Um, We saw this a little bit with the West Indies cricket team. They were asked to support the boycott very publicly too. And at this time, it was in May. So during the kind of the boycott, there was a, a Gloucestershire versus West Indies cricket match and the cricket team were asked you know will you come out and support the boycott and they they didn't uh like formally publicly but a huge number of um leaflets were handed out during that cricket match by the by the campaign for race against racial discrimination and and so it was yeah you can't necessarily say that all every single member of the black community in bristol or uh the black community more broadly supported the the boycott um for I don't know, pretty understandable reasons in some cases. So what was the turning point in in the campaign? When did the union and the bus company realise that, you know, they they had to back down? Yeah, so there was, you know, this big kind of campaign, the activism, the boycott. And I suppose... You know, historians, we always talk about different causes, and I guess you've kind of got your your kind of more like medium term, longer term causes. And then you've got this vote on the 27th of August, which is uh, I think 500 bus workers agreed to overturn the colour bar. Um, and then Ian Patey, who was the general manager of the bus company, I think it was the following day, said, we're going to get rid of it. And I think that obviously brought the brought it to an end and marked the success of the boycott. And I think that is pretty remarkable, right? That you do see this, this anti-racist organizing and an activism being so successful in a relatively short period of time. You know, we're kind of talking from like May through to the end of the end of August. And it's a few weeks later then that we start to see black and Asian um, employees working on the buses. Yeah. So, Tell us a bit more about that. Who, who do, we, do we know the identity of the first black and Asian people to, to, to work on the buses follow, following the, the revocation of the ban? Yeah, so we we do in the sense of um, Ragbir Singh was the first um, non-white um, employee on, on the Bristol buses and he was joined shortly afterwards by, I think it was two Jamaican and two Pakistani workers. Um, I, don't, I couldn't find out so, too much about their identities, but it it is a clear that, or oh, there are from some of the things I read, maybe a sense that there was a little bit of a kind of quiet quota that still existed in the background in terms of how many black and Asian employees would would be taken on in these much more like public facing roles of conductor or driver. Did you get much contrition from the the union and, and the bus company? Uh, later, so very, very many years later, um, Unite, which my understanding is that's the the kind of successor to the Transport and General Workers Union issued an apology. But that was that was like relatively recently in the 21st century. And I think at the time you didn't really get like a huge amount of of contrition, you know, and I think for people like Ian Patey, very, you know, not that long before he'd he'd kind of come out with these quite incendiary uh, statements, you know, saying that uh, he that once London Underground had employed um, black members of staff, you know, he and this is a quotation from him, says, I understand in London, coloured men have become arrogant and rude after they had been employed for some months. So I think there was this sense that because of the activism and then because of the vote, they needed to get rid of this colour bar. 
But I think probably a lot of people weren't necessarily overjoyed about it and still had the same sort of reticence and and kind of, yeah, feeling against it that they had prior to the campaign. Sure. I mean, as you say, this is a enormous vindication for, for Paul Stevenson and the other members of the the campaign. Now, I guess when we're considering the Bristol bus boycott, we've got to remember, as you've already mentioned a couple of times, what was going on in the States at the same time with the, the civil rights movement was really, really gathering momentum. Can you give us an idea of, of how, to what extent, the leaders of the Bristol bus boycott took inspiration from what was going on on the other side of the Atlantic at the time. Yeah, so, I mean, Stevenson very clearly said that he had taken inspiration from the US civil rights movement. I think he was a, my understanding was he was a very religious man, and as were lots of the leaders, you know, obviously Martin Luther King and lots of the leaders of the of the civil US civil rights movement. I think there's also maybe a little element of it which hasn't been discussed too much in the sort of when historians have been writing about about the boycott but there was a big kind of relatively recent history of of activism labor activism from the caribbean so in the sort of 1930s there were a huge number of cross variety of different caribbean islands of strikes from from workers on banana plantations sugar plantations of um kind of against the the kind of really terrible conditions in the 1930s and in Jamaica so a big strike took place uh, just before the second world war and I, I can kind of imagine I mean historians haven't written too much about this that that a lot of the the West Indian community in Britain were used to labor activism and so they took inspiration of course from the US civil rights movement but there and that was would have been on television and newspapers but there was also I think a, a kind of pedigree um and sort of culture of activism from from the caribbean now racial discrimination racial tension and inequality hardly seized with the victory of the bristol bus boycott so given that why is this event seen as such a landmark campaign for racial justice in britain how did it improve the lives of the black community in this country yeah, I think that you're you're completely right. It didn't. You can't say that like there was the bus boycott and then racial discrimination was ended. In in fact, the following year, Stevenson was refused um, service in a pub, and you can see that there are a number of examples of um, racial discrimination in in Bristol and beyond after it. I think it's seen as such a, a landmark event because of the law that was passed in um, 65, the Race Relations Act, which sort of for the first time outlawed in public places um, racism or refusing to serve people or overcharge people of colour or to incite racial hatred. The issue with this with this law was that it didn't um, affect employment necessarily or housing or sort of private places uh so it didn't it kind of was a relatively toothless but people were prosecuted under it um so people from a sort of neo-nazi group had been prosecuted under um the act it was a civil thing rather than a criminal thing um also interestingly it was also used against black power activists later on because they were described as um inciting racial hatred but i think that's a different story for for maybe a different time um but it has been seen as a landmark 
a kind of a, a catalyst, I guess, for having this this 65 Act, which is seen as a really landmark piece of legislation. Um, it might be, you know, people like Harold Wilson obviously had heard and were involved in, in the campaign in, in some way. And then that's, the, you know, the Labour government who brought that, that act in. And I suppose it is just an example of successful organising um, and successful organising that happened in this country as opposed to, you know, when I grew up, I very much heard and knew about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, but had never heard of the Bristol bus boycott until I was an adult, you know, until actually relatively recently. And I think it has been in the last few years that this important story has become a lot more prominent and become a lot more well well known about, which I think is is great because it is revealing, I think, of this kind of race relations of what was going on in Britain at the time and and the sort of very complex nature of, of British racism. And did it give the black community in this country a sense of confidence that they could actually make their voices heard? I mean, was it important in that respect as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think that the the people who were involved in the campaign, many of them went on to keep working for uh, racial equality, you know, people like Hackett and Anne Bailey, in fact, were very involved in improving the conditions for, for people uh, in Bristol and, and further afield, Stevenson too. And I think it must have given people a real sense that you can challenge uh, racial discrimination. I think particularly when it was very clear, you know, when there was a very clear colour bar in place, and we see examples of that happening later. I think, you know, there's a case in, in London later on in Euston Station and, and there was a, um, a guy there who, who did something really kind of similar in a sense of like challenging very specific colour bars uh, in, in employment. And, and I think there, has, there was great success in that. Um, you obviously have are so many other different forms of, of racism which maybe are, are harder to tackle because they're not so overt. But I think... That doesn't take away from what was achieved in Bristol or what it must have meant to the people who were involved in the campaign. Now, finally, Hannah, we, we saw the, the Black Lives Matter protests um, taking place in Britain two or three years ago. Um, now, arguably the most high profile event in that wave of protest was the toppling of the statue of the 17th century slave trader Edward Colston, which obviously occurred in Bristol. I mean, do you think it's possible to draw a line between the toppling of the Colston statue and the Bristol bus boycott? I think there is in the sense of, I think without the toppling of the statue and Black Lives Matter, the, the, the kind of protest, the, the activism, the interest in renewed interest in black British history I don't think necessarily we would be having this podcast or I think that this story might not have become um so you know much better known about I think you can also so I'm now a kind of a historian of 18th century Britain and and of the Caribbean and I see the legacies of slavery in the the kind of racism that existed in Bristol in the 1960s of this kind of attitude towards black people as dangerous and that you don't want them to um, be in positions of power. And so I think all of these things are are linked together in some way from, from Edward Coulston um, and transatlantic slavery through to 
kind of post-war migration and discrimination and then to the activism of sort of 2020, you can kind of see that they are linked, sadly. Maybe we would hope that we would have in this country kind of moved beyond the legacies of the of the transatlantic slave trade. But I think it is clear that they are kind of still with us today and that it's important that that kind of activism and kind of podcasts like this kind of engaging in those those events that they still you know they, they still happen that was hannah cusworth hannah is a historian researcher and history education consultant thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by daniel kramer arden 